Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakian. Super excited to be talking about the future of healthcare. We have Dr. Tom Lee joining us on the show. Hello. Hello, hey. Thanks so much for coming on, really appreciate it. Nah, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, long time coming. I'm, yeah. I'm super pumped we're finally doing this. For those that don't know Tom's background, he's a physician, entrepreneur, and man of mystery. He's the founder and executive chairman of One Medical Group, which is committed to providing the best primary care through exceptional quality, a world-class experience, and second-to-none technology. Most recently, he started Galileo, which is building the future of healthcare. And you can find all the links in the bio below to onemedical.com, as well as galileo.io, and his LinkedIn profile. All right, Tom, let's start things off with one of our favorite questions to ask our guests. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? I already was joking about it before, so I can't say that anymore. Um, the direction of our world. Um, it is uh, definitely spinning and orbiting. Um, in the context of time, not much has changed. Um, but uh, I would say, you know, if there was an inflection point on life and Earth, it feels like we're in some type of inflection point. Um, so that would be my short answer. Tell us more about the inflection point. Well, you know, uh, you know, there's this whole trend towards expansion, singularity, obviously, right? And if you look at uh, humans as an expansion form of that, and what we're doing to Earth, what we're doing to information and tech. Um, you see some of that fabric splitting in society, uh, on our planet, and in how we are just living our lives that, you know, you really can kind of see this fork in the road of does the world actually go in a negative direction and humanity go in a negative direction, or does it go positive and in a way that hopefully is a little bit more uplifting, but it does feel like we could kind of go down either at this stage, and one is very plausible. You know. What do you think is needed for us to go down the positive fork? It's a great question. Um, I'm a little bit concerned our natural momentum will carry us down the negative path. Um, you know, it's just it's hard to change human behavior, human instincts, our natural kind of biologic wiring. Um, but uh, if we were to say, hey, what could nudge it towards the positive? Um, you know, it is this kind of human factor, the bonds of social fabric. Are we actually going to pull together um, and really try to solve some of the tougher problems and tougher choices? Um, so, you know, I think it's just one of those things where if you can kind of, you know, as a collective start to influence, uh, you know, our mindset probably more than anything. Um, you know, that's kind of my two bits. Yeah. What would be an important thing to influence with mindset on that social fabric side to get to that positive fork? Yeah, you know, you know, uh, there's so many ways to cut this. We're really at a super high level. Um, but if I were to say, hey, you know, what would be kind of an influence that would be kind of cool? Uh, you know, just a broader awareness and practice of, of mindfulness, I think, um, could really start to tighten up the fabric of humanity a little bit more. Um, and, you know, I was never really a woo-woo type of person, but, you know, it's just pretty clear and apparent that the, you know, the way our society is structured, the way tech influences our human brain, um, the, the, the counterbalancing force of meditation, mindfulness, um, puts people in a better place of uh, connectedness, and I think that's what we're kind of lacking, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, definitely. Now, I want to know about your journey. So. 
Who were you growing up that got interested in medicine? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I was not naturally interested in medicine. In fact, I was probably not interested in medicine because all my family was in medicine. My parents were both doctors. Uh, my uncles and cousins were all physicians at some level. So I was a little bit more of a contrarian. And I loved the sciences, I loved helping people, so that would naturally speak towards a medical career. But I also was a bit of a contrarian where I didn't want to do what my parents were doing. Yeah. Um, so if anything, I kind of almost thought about doing a graphic design career. That was kind of um, something that you know, was appealing to me. But ultimately it was like, hmm, you know, what can I make a living at? And uh, medicine seemed like a more pragmatic choice. So I rolled the dice. You know, I, I, I didn't love the sciences, frankly, when I was in school. I thought, that it was um, not really taught well, um, and it was just too micro, and it wasn't contextual for the way uh, my brain worked. Yes, yes. And so some brains really love that shit. They love the detail and memorization of things. And mine was, I don't understand how this, any of this works or why it works, and so the patterns didn't make any sense to me. So, um, so basically, you know, uh, I, I rolled the dice, went to med school, and then once I got into med school, I was like, I love this profession because I can study and the, the practice of, and uh, the studying of medicine as an art and a science translated to human care. So it was much more of a direct connection. You know, G proteins and, you know, biochemistry and P orbitals, you know, it was hard for me to see how that helped you as a person. But, you know, anatomy, physiology, you know, uh, you know, microbes, you know, that kind of stuff made a lot more sense to me. So that was kind of when it was crystallized that, oh, yeah, medicine is kind of cool. And, uh, and I really dove into medical school with, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, curiosity and fun. Yeah. So there's almost a sweet spot then in terms of one's understanding of the medical field at the micro level, as well as at this macro, ab more abstract, the application of the science and the yep. art to, yep. the, to, the, um, to the exact state of each individual human's yep. physiology at the moment. That's, so then, so then it's, it almost seems as though it's, it, it's, it was to swing ourselves more towards the direction of the application of all of the yeah. micro stuff is what is super important. Um, okay, so then uh, when you were going through the process of, okay, it was Yale first, then it was Stanford, and then it was the University of Washington. Uh, kind of. I mean, kind of. In, 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 you know, you'd yeah. kind of move the hats around. I yeah. the hats around. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay. So, but those three yeah. were, were um, and then you were at UCSF. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that was clinical faculty and you were doing um, Hippocrates as well, the chief medical officer there. Uh, correct. Yeah. And yes. all of these kind of weird jumping hats. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so, so give us, give us a, um, give us a synthesis of that time period for you. Wow. So... Well, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll describe the arc, okay. um, which might have a little bit more of a natural thread, but um, uh, maybe let's start with the discipline of medicine forces you to go micro, to our point, right? So you study the practice of medicine, but increasingly the way the healthcare system is architected it encourages you to increasingly get specialized, do research, and focus on the micro. And so when I was doing my medical training in Seattle as a med student, you know, I was doing rural and urban medicine, and then I did my residency at the, in Boston at Brigham, mm. very kind of quaternary care system, complex care. The increasing pressure was to specialize, 
Um, and I think my innate uh, nature in biology was to be more of a macro person and solve bigger, more population-oriented problems. So there was a t dissonance there. And so, and, and plus, you know, healthcare quality and service and cost were just out of control. So um, to me, the more captivating problem was not, you know, how do I really nuance this drug for this disease? but how do I redesign the care delivery system for the population? And so it was an orthogonal switch, and I was like, I gotta do something different. And so I rolled the dice, got into business school, um, and fortunately I was you know, accepted to Sanford, and then that's really kind of what launched kind of most of my entrepreneurial career, which was, you know, I had the kernel of one medical uh, in my head, but I was an academic clinician. I had no tech background, no business background. I was a pretty classic physician where we didn't really understand or respect non-clinical uh, arenas, particularly the business arena. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we are so frequently pressured into the specialized forces that it is hard for us to take a macro generalist perspective on how to redesign uh, population-wide healthcare systems. And so that is where this going to Stanford and going getting into the process of um, Hippocrates and then ended up founding uh, one medical group. And so that was 12 and a half years ago. Yeah, don't remind me, but yeah, geez, time flies. <laughs> and I want, give, us, um, give us a walk through of how you envisioned the redesigning of the healthcare system. Well, the vision was always the same, which is if you can have a nice high-touch experience around hotels, restaurants, coffee bars, whatever, why is the doctor's experience so crappy? Um, and then separate from that, how do you improve the quality of care, which most patients can't realize, right? They usually associate a long wait and a bunch of degrees as quality, and that may or may not uh, necessarily be true. So. I wanted to also design a higher quality model, and I was concerned about healthcare costs, so how can you design a higher touch primary care model that reduces total cost of care? So I was really interested in all these three elements. So there's the service side that patients can appreciate, but there's also an examination of uh, quality and cost. And so, uh, you know, uh, ultimately, it's just like any other entrepreneur. You know, if you have a vision, you gotta figure out how to build it. And um, the first version was pretty scrappy and uh, low cost. I knew nobody would fund it, so I self-funded it. Um, and, uh, and you just get early prototyping, right? It's like no different than software development, except it's a service design experience. And uh, so we did a, a lightweight office. It was higher touch. You know, I was doing the blood draws, the answering the phone, mm -hmm. sending out the bills. <laughs> Um, but it allowed me to learn everything about running a practice. Yeah. Um, so you just got to dive in, figure it out, and uh, fortunately we figured it out. And then, you know, every year you just improve many more things. And so now everybody goes, gosh, it's amazing, whatever. And, you know, it's just this whole uh, stepwise process. It, uh, there's no kind of silver bullets or things you can just do. And yeah, yeah. suddenly you've got voila, uh, one medical. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Take us, take us back to when you were um, doing, you're wearing all the hats, you're learning about the processes of running um, your own clinic, and then what was it like then um, designing it for uh, optimizing the patient experience and then also um, the, the, the cost? Um, yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the weird thing about One Medical is, you know, people experience it as a high touch, you know, a warm experience that's very thoughtful. And that's certainly hard to do. And you got to, you know, think about hospitality. And we learned a lot about looking at best in class hospitality across multiple industries. But that side is hard. But then you got to run it against an economic model. In a lot of you know, free market economies, such as restaurateurs or whatever, you just charge a, a price premium to that that's big enough to support the labor cost to do a high touch model. In healthcare, because reimbursement is, is somewhat negotiated and fixed right through contracts, you don't have the luxury, you can't charge a higher code in the insurance world for a higher touch visit, right? It's the same. It'll reimburse the same. So you have to really think about lean and lean operations. And so most people don't know that One Medical is doing, you know, 10x the service at about a third the labor cost of traditional doctor's office. And that allows us to really kind of power the practice to make it work. You know. But, you know, it's a little bit of left and right brain. You just got to, you know, hammer on both sides. How does it feel? And then, you know, what's the math look like? Um, and the math is hard to do. Like most people don't know the math of medical practices. You know, in fact, most of delivery, they don't have a great understanding of the economics of what things cost, um, partly because they haven't been held accountable for it, the way we pay for healthcare. Meaning in the traditional insurance world, you get paid for stuff plus, you know, X, right? And so you're not, you're not paid uh, for saving money underneath the hood, like you know, you know it, it, it's just not the mindset of most uh, provider groups. Yeah. So, 10x the service, one third the medical costs. Let's get in. Let's do the math. We'll do the math in a moment. The patient experience run. The NDI should be up right now. Do you see it? Okay. So, so the patient experience itself. You guys have how many of these? Uh, I think we're almost no. 80 or so 80. across the U.S. Yeah, 80 across the U.S. Mm -hmm. And do you, you call them clinic? Uh, offices, offices or clinics. clinics. Yeah, it okay. depends on who you are. You okay. know, we have different dialects. <laughs> and so um, one of the things here is that um, you, the setting doesn't feel like a medical office. Correct. Is that one of the yeah the key design for the patient experience? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's weird that this is considered now, you know, what people should be aspiring to, but it just seemed obvious you know, 12 years ago plus. Um, but, you know, the average doctor's office back in the day was, you know, it's still what most doctors' offices are, you know, small, cramped, somewhat faded chairs and dirty carpeting with old outdated magazines and linoleum and plastic, you know, it's just, it, uh, if you're sick, you know, the environment matters. And I think people don't uh, appreciate the importance of that and or what it signals. Yeah. that the physician actually cares, cares. right? Yeah. And so, you know, if you think about most physicians, we're trained as scientists. And so it's not to the fault of the physicians, we're just mostly trained as scientists and we don't fully appreciate the environmental context of things and almost perhaps diminish it, you know? Um, if you go to the average researcher or professor, it's not like they have very glamorous offices. They're used to the quality of the work standing for themselves, not the veneer of it. But when you're a patient and you're truly designing for a patient experience um, and you want them to feel cared for, you do have to pay attention. And I think that's kind of one thing that we said when we started off with One Medical, yeah. 80, from one to 80. 
I yeah. love it across the United States and and the the appearance of these as you know as we get to look at them it 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 it, sh it shouts we we care we we care about the design of what you've walked into and like your feeling of being at home here yep um and so that's huge and then um now i want us to um hit on uh how are the um the practices so now i'm i'm in i'm getting i'm getting i'm registered i'm really enjoying your ambiance but then I'm also going into where um, I'm actually working with the physicians um, yep. in the back in the, in the rooms and whatnot. And then um, now teach us about the practices that um, One Medical, we'll get to the math stuff in a moment, but teach us about the practices that One Medical's physicians kind of embody with the deep uh, art and science yep. of medicine for each physician or for each patient. Well, so. If you think about an ideal doctor's experience, it has many, many different elements. You know, obviously the reception, the way that people answer the phone, the way you're greeted are a portion of it. But ultimately, people are there to see the physician, right? Or the healthcare practitioner that they're uh, booked to see. And if that clinical encounter is mediocre or low quality, it doesn't really matter, right? Um, and so ultimately, the experience into the physician is an important part of it, but it's not the most important part. The most important part is the actual clinician that you're seeing. Mm. And so there's always a trade-off because it's like, you know, when you have a, a master chef, you know, you gotta cater to the chef and you gotta cater to the customers. When you have pilots, you gotta cater to the pilots and the passengers. You know, same thing with physicians. You gotta cater to the patients and the physicians. So you have to be think thoughtful about uh, what it means to be a physician. And it is tough to be a physician in general, uh, particularly in the United States where reimbursement, the more you do, the more you get paid, and the, the payments have been kind of relatively flat on a, flat on a fee-for-service real-term basis. And so uh, if you're in primary care, which is reimbursed at a relatively lower amount because you're not doing as many procedures, it is a tough job. And so what we tried to do was first create some more airspace in the schedule so the physician can be a little bit more their best self. It's still hard. I mean, at One Medical, our practitioners see about 15 or 16 patients a day, which is much better than 25 to 30. If you go to the average primary care physician, they need to see about 25, 30 patients a day to make an income where they can afford a house in a lot of high income neighborhoods, you know, but it's, 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 you know, it's a lot of work. If you think about, and the way I describe this to people who don't know what it's like to be a clinician, is if you go to an average business person, how many days do you have in any given day where you have 20 appointments, right, or 20 meetings a day? And imagine if you had even just one day where you're booked at basically 20 minute slots all day long, Every half hour, yeah. you have one. Less than that, right? Yeah. So, so 20, you know, if you're booked at every 20 minutes, you're going to see 25 patients, you know, 24 meetings a day. And you did that every day of your life, you know, four to five days a week to make your income. Damn. And the income stayed about the same incrementally over, you know, in real term basis, right? So that's what it's like to be a physician today, particularly in primary care. And we reduced it to about 15 or 16. They're still doing some emails in between. So it is still a very busy day for an average practitioner. Um, and the responsibility is high, right? Because 
you're caring for people's lives. If somebody comes in with depression, if somebody comes in with suicidal risk, you can't, it's really hard to say, sorry, you know. 20 minutes like, is yeah, up, geez, I gotta go. Know, you know, wow. or you're diagnosed with HIV or cancer. Like, so, you know, it, it's, it's really a tough profession that people don't really fully appreciate. Um, and so we made it better, so that helps. And then we also focus on hiring uh, uh, clinicians and primary care docs that would really kind of uh, practice the style of medicine we think is the highest quality of medicine. Again, that's a charged word, quality. Like, how do you define quality of medicine? People associate quality in terms of, you know, checkbox lists and, and, and pedigrees and number of research articles. But at the end of the day, you know, our thesis at One Medical is quality is the ability to listen and hear. Right? Mm. As a primary mm. care clinician, you need to be able to communicate and listen and understand the issues. The medicine is in the medicine. Like, most people have a pretty good fundamental knowledge of medicine. Where, where clinicians fall off is where they're either too busy, burnt out, they don't care enough, yeah, yeah. or they don't listen enough. And um, if you're not listening enough, then you're not really understanding the core problem, and you're not really solving the fundamental issue for the patient. So yeah. a lot of it is giving uh, our clinicians the time, resources, and really the mindset to really care for patients thoughtfully, and that's where you discover the undiscovered cancer, the undiscovered depression, the undiscovered XYZ that ultimately uh, changes the trajectory of an individual's health. And yeah, those are the stories that I love hearing about from our patients, yeah. Whoa, so by changing the physician-patient experience from the 20-minute time slots, um, perverse incentive systems, this type of stuff, when we transition it more to I'm here to listen and get to the first principle uh, things that are happening within you that are causing you to feel the ways that you are uh, and actually healing people's life trajectories towards health. Wow, that's what's up, yeah. It is cool. I mean, uh, kudos and credit goes to our team. Like, this happens because our clinicians are great, our support teams are great, you know, our general tech and product and corporate team, they all work as one giant team to make it all work and at front and center is the clinician with the patient but you know that's where you know that payout comes and you know it's fun to see I, it's great and now um what is the um your ability to provide 10 times better health care at one third the cost how does how does someone do that yeah, it's, that's obviously a shorthand. It's really hard to measure these things, but the cost side is pretty clear. Um, meaning, you know, most people would say this is a great service experience. You know, so I think people would agree that the the service level is certainly much better than the average doctor's office. The cost side is is much lower in the sense that we've redesigned the whole practice, and. Um, None of it is easy, um, uh, but you can run it apples to apples, and um, it's a combination of two things. One is most physician practices aren't really want run very efficiently or well. If you go to the average doctor's office and you see people running around with paper and or antiquated uh, machinery and systems, it's not hard to see why it's a little bit inefficient, right? And going back to kind of our earlier statement, docs aren't trained to be business people, managers, they're trained to be scientists and uh, you know compassionate individuals. So um, it's not a surprise. And then when you take a really complicated insurance reimbursement system yeah. and ask 
physicians to lead them in small practices, it's not really a recipe for success. So part of the physician uh, practice is they've overhired labor to manage a process that ends up being more inefficient and then they need to see more patients to support the labor costs. So it's kind of a ratchet. Um, and so it's really hard to unwind that when you're a busy practitioner. We started from scratch. I had obviously a business background and we were pretty neurotic that every um, kind of thing that we did to support you know, patient workflow and administrative, we would do it better, faster and smarter using technology. So by using kind of better system design and technology, it allowed us to lower our overhead while not sacrificing anything on quality and service. Sweet. And so that generated a margin that allows us to take on you know, professional capital, which allows us to expand and grow more quickly than mm -hmm. the average doctor's office. So um, all these things were necessary components to make the model work. And then give us a bit on the, uh, the efficiencies that uh, the physicians have within um, their work with patients. The electronic health record or yep. medical record is something that's really big and you know Rob Lustig's on the show and he's talking about how bad it is yep. like lack the lack of eye contact yep. when I have to take notes as a physician yep. at the same time so yep. teach us about because the future seems like it's being able to take a, a, a voice to text transcription and parse it for those key yep. health care points and you know stuff like that. Yeah sure. Um, so certainly, you know, at One Medical, we designed our own electronic health record. Back then, that was a bit of, you know, heretical. People were like, you're doing what? You know, you got whole companies with hundreds, if not thousands of engineers, billions of capital invested, and you're going to start up an EHR within a practice model, right? Most people thought that was pretty crazy. Um, and we were probably the first to really pioneer that. And it was early tech days. You know, this is really old stack Ruby on Rails type of tech. But we built it, and it was a good V1, and then we've migrated it over time. We're now almost fully upgraded to the new system, which is, I think, one of the best in class EHRs out there. Um, and it's designed because, you know, the reason why it's so much better is it's designed towards speed and usability. Most mm -hmm. EHRs are designed to sell more EHRs. And so how do you sell EHRs? Well, you check all the boxes and it has this many features and the procurement uh, team checks, you know, hey, it has these systems and... The perverse you know. incentives. Yeah, so there's really a lot of weird stuff out there and they're not really designed to meet the clinician's needs. They're really just designed to check the boxes of all the constituents who make the purchasing decision on what tech systems to do. And frankly, there aren't that many options. Most of the tech systems are really uh, mediocre. So uh, it's not surprising that uh, there's a whole uproar about it. When you remember what we talked about, most clinicians are on a 25 to 30 patient day schedule in primary care. So that already is not a recipe for success. It doesn't matter how fast that EHR is, <laughs> you got very little turnaround time. It's like imagining, you know, that you got to turn around a plane in 30 seconds. It doesn't matter what you know, garbage bags and gloves you got, you still only got 30 seconds to turn around a plane. No different, like there's, there's no speed system there. So uh, at One Medical, we obviously only see 15 or 16 patients a day. More airspace, yeah. more time between visits to kind of really thoughtfully put stuff in. And then the design of the system is much faster. Um, and, you know, I would argue that it's probably one of the best systems out there today. 
um, and those all work together. But you know, it doesn't come for free. You know, the margins attract the capital, which allow us to invest in the software design. Okay, cool. That's how it works. Yep. Right. Okay. If you're not, if you're an average practice, it's really hard to design your own EHR. Today, okay. it's a little bit easier. The tech stack is a lot more uh, scalable and efficient today. Yeah. Uh, and then the physicians, even though they're only seeing 15 instead of 30 patients, they can still afford to have like a mortgage and whatnot as well. Yeah, yeah. so their comp is at the top end of the scale for primary care. And um, it's still, you know, look, the economic equation of being a primary care physician is still not super optimal because most medical schools put people into, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. You're in a non-income generating environment for seven years post-college, yeah. building up a debt, and then you're starting to generate an income. So, uh, you know, people don't go into medicine because they want to make money, they want to take care of uh, patients. And um, economic equations are increasingly challenging. In the past, they were probably almost too fat. It was almost too rich of a job. And it's leaned down enough where now the equation's a little bit more challenging, which is why you see a lot of med students end, end up being specialists. Yeah. Things like becoming a generalist, the insurance reimbursement systems, these things, the correcting the perverse incentives, these things are slowly happening in healthcare. And it's cool to have entrepreneurs that are also physicians that take the reins and say that we know how to design this better. Um, that leads us to Galileo. Oh, yeah. All right. So what's happening? This is a year and a half for you now. Yeah. Um, and so Galileo is building the future of healthcare. Let's te teach us about this. Yeah. So we're still a little bit under wraps. I don't like to kind of talk about stuff until we've got more validated. So totally. we'll be able to share a little bit. But um, you know, if you think about uh, healthcare today, we're at this kind of threshold of amazing stuff happening in terms of some of the uh, genomic stuff, you know, the microbiome, how we understand lifestyle. And uh, our thesis is uh, healthcare still is big and broken, and there's a future healthcare system to be designed and built. And One Medical is, you know, a way to kind of say, hey, how do you make the current system work better? Galileo is really an opportunity to say, how would we vision, kind of envision a future healthcare system? And how do we design that and build that today? So it's really a feature forward model. Um, and it's got you know, two core components. Um, one is, you know, it's not hard to see, but you know, we think the future of healthcare is going to require some clinical intelligence right, mm -hmm. um, through tech. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you start designing and building a framework around that so that we can make smarter, better, faster decisions that are higher quality given an overwhelming amount of data on any individual. So that's kind of one aspect of what we're building. So then you need to get a person, you need to get my biometrics uh, on like a constant stream basically through technology and then be able to maybe predict. Yeah. 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 One can imagine a future state where that kind of uh, system exists, right? And so we're early, early days on that, but that's kind of how we think mm -hmm. about where the future of medicine should be, which is how do you take this um, and really move it into a higher quality, more personalized model, right? It's all the stuff you hear about and talk about, but what does that really look like tangibly and how do you actually fund it and what are the economics of it? It's, it's you know, it sounds great in the abstract, but in practice you got to make it work. So that's one part of it. So we have this kind of um, 
kind of tech-heavy component to clinical intelligence. But the important part about it is, you know, and the primary motivation to starting Galileo is there's a vast uh, number of folks, mostly the complex and underserved, that don't have access to the care model that they need, right? So if you think about One Medical, it's great for the 80% of the population that is able to manage their care, schedule an appointment, go to the doctor, and get most of their needs met, and then follow through. But there's about 20% of the population that is too sick, too underserved, too under-resourced to really manage their healthcare. Mm -hmm. And they end up costing the healthcare system 80% of the dollar, right? Yeah, that's it's crazy. the whole Pareto principle. Yeah. So um, basically what we're trying to do is uh, design a care system explicitly for the most complex and underserved. Ah. So that's what that cool. model is. And so, Whoa. Okay, so um, what, what, what does it look like talking about the underserved, the under-resourced? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we think that's a bit more of how do you translate healthcare, right? It's not necessarily the knowledge of medicine, like that's, I think, clear. It's how do you make it actually happen? And that's a really hard thing to do. So we don't have the answers yet. We're still early. We're not yeah. talking about how we're doing it yet. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the approach is really uh, being you know, similar in mindset to One Medical. Think about who your you know, patient is. Think about the ecosystem in which they live. How do you really meet them where they are and solve their problems so that they are healthier and uh, hopefully lower cost for the healthcare system? Because then the savings can then be exactly. applied to other problems. Yeah. So not only do we get the healthier people, but then a vast majority of the spending gets opened up for other things, education, all other yeah, aspects. Yeah, you can of do a lot life. more yeah. things. So right now, the system is just poorly designed to take care of the sick and complex. I mean, I've worked in a lot of the best healthcare systems in the country, and the practice architecture is really not designed to really proactively care for the sick. And so we hope they come to the office. We hope they follow up with that cardiology appointment. We hope they're able to get the right resources to show up to X, Y, and Z appointments. And in reality, it's really hard for people who are of lower income means or have really, uh, you know, really established yeah. clinical complexity. And it's just overwhelming for a lot of individuals. And so uh, I think we're really trying to design a high touch model for that patient. Love the work and future of healthcare. A couple quick questions on the way out of the episode. First one is what do you think happens pre-birth and post-death? Whoa, we just shifted gears. Boom. <laughs> um, uh, pre-birth and post-death. Um, my guess is it's one and the same. Um, uh, I don't have a great descriptor for it, um, but I do, again, I, I haven't dug a lot, you know, I don't spend a lot of time reading into this, but my feeling and intuition is there's an energy force that we haven't fully captured, um, and uh, that energy force is the difference, you know, that of all these other intangibles that we don't have fully accounted for, it, my feeling is that's the energy force. and so. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's an intangible that's pre and post, and I'd like to sit, yes, yeah, I'd like to believe that that is kind of an energy force that we kind of morph mm -hmm. into, but you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, next question is uh, do, you, do you think we're in a simulation? Uh, 
Yeah, geez. I, I mean, I don't want to offend, but I think that's a bit ridiculous, personally. I just think that um, that's people probably overthinking, you know, reality. Um, sure, it's it's an, a mind f to kind of think about it that way, but I think that's probably uh, there's no way, obviously, prove it. But uh, I just think it's it's fun to uh, mentally toy with, but I'm just cynical. Yeah, and I just think that that's just kind of ridiculous. And the last, <laughs> la last question is, what do you think is the most beautiful you thing should in take, the world? Uh, do, are these universal questions you ask everybody? I, usually, yeah. You should take a tally. I'd love to see what the tally looks yeah, like. Yeah, there's been 420 plus of these uh, answered. So we'll, oh, we can, yeah, I'd be curious uh, Later, we'll, we'll go and look back. The and is not yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, this is why we're building out the database, and then we'll go part, scrape it for the, all the yeah, yeah, important yeah. information cool. like this. Okay. Last question is, what's the most beautiful thing in the world? Oh, wow. Um, for me personally, I think uh, space and moon, you know, like the, the ability at times, like an eclipse is a classic example, when, you, when the lighting is just clear and right, that you realize that we are just a rounding error um, in our solar system, let alone uh, the universe. And so I, I, for me, that's always awe-inspiring and beautiful, almost at any moment, you know, when you get a full appreciation for, you know, uh, the kind of the, the ridiculousness of our, you know, little daily human problems. So I, I, love, I love just uh, the, the context of space, yeah. This has been such a fun yeah. episode, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. We really no, appreciate it. No, no, we'll it. see. But it's it, it's obviously been uh, you know long and, uh, and and glad we're able to do it. Glad so, we were able yeah. to do it. And for all of those that watch, huge thank you. We greatly appreciate you watching. Give us your thoughts in the comments below on the future of healthcare. We'd love to hear from you. Also, please check out the links below, onemedical.com, galeo.io, also Tom's LinkedIn profile. Get talking with your friends, your families, your coworkers, people online on social media about a lot of the things that Tom mentioned in the episode. Get chatting about them, get spreading these things around to more people about the future of healthcare. And huge shout out to Ron Vogus for producing and directing. Thank you, Ronnie, we really appreciate it. Yeah. And everyone, support the artists, entrepreneurs, and organizations around the world that you believe in. Support Simulation, our links are below. Help us grow and prosper as well. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace.